and Geyseric, after conquering both Boniface and Aspar in battle, displayed a foresight worth recounting, whereby he made his good fortune most thoroughly secure. Procopius, from the Vandalic Wars. He was a man of deep thought and few words, holding luxury and disdain, furious in his anger, greedy for gain, shrewd in winning over barbarians, and skilled in sowing the seeds of dissension to arouse enmity. He reigned for a long time, receiving authority, as they say, from God himself. Jordanis, from the Origin and Deeds of the Goths. Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 14, More Serpent Than Dove. Geyseric the Lame is everything today. I've already talked about his leadership of the Vandals and Alans out of Spain and into North Africa. I've talked about how they fought their way across 800 miles to reach the rich province of Africa Proconsularis. I gushed about Geyseric's maneuvering to reach a deal with the Roman authorities, and his bold leap to capture Carthage and take that authority for himself. Today I'm going to talk about how he ordered his kingdom so that it would remain secure, how he carved out a place for his people in the community of the Mediterranean, and how he made sure that the Romans would respect his power. Spoilers, Geyseric will survive the Western Empire, and his kingdom will survive him. Guys, I have a thing for the Vandals, and you may have noticed. I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe it's just the sheer length of their journey, or the many different environments they had to adapt to in just a single generation's time. But I stand the Vandals so very hard. Am I using that terminology correctly, fellow children? Should I stop using? Yes, I should stop. So I will, and I'll get on with it. After Carthage fell in 439, surely the whole weight of Rome would come crashing down on the African coast. You would think, wouldn't you? But no. Aetius and the rest of the crowd were too wrapped up with Visigoths and Bagaudae in Gaul to deal with this new catastrophe. Remember when I talked about that new reality, that the people running the empire had to make choices now and prioritize issues, and the Vandals at the moment had to be put on the back burner. That sounds like an indictment of their leadership, it is a little bit. But if you think of the empire as a large corporation, any of you in corporate jobs could just tell us how hard it is to implement a shift in strategy or focus. And that's now, with modern communication and transportation. Imagine having to extract a modern army from heavy engagement and redeploy them to an entirely new theater. I'm sure there are vets in the audience. Even the most well-oiled machine of a military has ample opportunities for inefficiency and Charlie Foxtrot. Now imagine doing it all in a world where information travels no faster than a quick horse, and if an army manages to move 20 miles in a day, that is an extraordinarily good day. The logistical challenge of extraction from Gaul and redeployment in Africa meant that nothing could be done by the court of Valentinian III when Carthage fell, and so Geyseric had some freedom of action. He used that freedom to outfit invasions of Sicily, Sardinia, and the Balearic Islands. Sicily was another breadbasket of the empire, and one uncomfortably close to Rome and Ravenna. 
Geyseric was making a point, and he was making it as clear as day. I have already taken control of one major strategic resource, that being food, and I am perfectly capable of messing with that resource further. Rome, the city, had shrunk since Alaric's sacking, but it was still home to somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million people. Half a million angry Romans was not a headache that the central government needed to add to their list of headaches. No Germanic leader had ever held this kind of leverage before. Theodosius II in Constantinople tried to help solve the problem in the old-fashioned way in 441. He dispatched a huge number of ships to reverse Vandal gains, but the expedition had five different commanders, and squabbling among them meant the campaign never made it past Sicily. The stripping of troops from the east for this adventure also emboldened Attila and prompted his attacks on Margus and the other cities in Moesia. Honestly, I'm starting to think that the ego of a military commander might be the most dangerous threat to a civilization across all of human history. Anyway, before long, Theodosius was dead, replaced by Marcion, who would prove curiously uninterested in action against the Vandals. After that disappointment, Valentinian was forced to recognize the Vandal Kingdom by treaty in 442. In return for confirmation of his control over the provinces of Proconsularis, Byzacena, Numidia, and Mauritania Sidifensis, Gaiseric agreed to relinquish control over Sicily and the other islands, and to keep the grain trade going. He agreed to pay tribute and send his son Hunneric to Italy as a hostage, but in all practical respects, the Vandals and Alans had created a new and independent kingdom out of the empire's underbelly. The Romans perhaps believed they could make this into a client kingdom, as they once had the rulers of Mauritania back in the early days of empire, but times had changed, and Gaiseric wasn't about to allow himself to become anybody's client. At last, he could begin to create this new entity. So, how do you make a kingdom? It's all very well to call yourself king and wear a crown and ride a good horse and so on. You must have followers and an army that's willing to fight for you and to go where you lead it. I would certainly hope so, because as the old saying goes, a leader with no followers, just a guy taking a walk. But that's being a king. There are dozens of them roaming around Europe at this particular moment in history. It is not the same as having a kingdom. Clearly, you'll have to settle down somewhere, some patch of ground, but anywhere you settle will have people already on it, who already have leaders. Some of them might even like their leaders. So how do you convince them that the place they live is now your kingdom? Geyseric started by rewarding his followers. When the source of your power is the army, first and foremost, you have to keep the army on your side. Roman emperors since Caesar had understood that often to the detriment of the rest of the empire. Gaiseric granted land to his commanders. Not a right of billeting or a portion of tax revenue like a foetus, direct title and ownership of estates. Most of those estates were previously owned by Romans, which would have been awkward if Gaiseric had any interest in Roman opinion on the matter. Fortunately, he didn't. Gaiseric essentially scraped off the top layer of African society and replaced them with his own people. Since that layer did pretty much all of the writing, the howl of outrage that rings through the sources makes the whole thing seem apocalyptic. Procopius wrote later, quote, All who happen to be men of note or conspicuous for their wealth he handed over as slaves, together with their wealth and money, to his sons, 
and he robbed the rest of their estates, which were both very numerous and excellent, and distributed them among the nation of the Vandals. It fell to those that had formerly possessed these lands to be in extreme poverty. End quote. The sources say that many of these estate owners were reduced to slavery, but the fact is that a lot of these people had very deep knowledge of how these estates operated. Busting them down to work in the fields would be a huge waste, so they probably continued on as overseers and other kinds of administrators. I'm not saying that they would enjoy the work, I'm just saying it's not necessarily as dire as Procopius paints it. But Geyseric, above all else, had to make Africa productive again. Essentially, he needed to undo the damage his armies had wrought when they came in, and redirect that produce and tax revenue into his own government rather than Ravenna. He also had to keep the grain trade going, because nothing would bring the Romans down on him faster than an interruption there. The lands he gave to his followers were called by later writers the Vandal Allotments, and unfortunately we have no detailed account of their extent. They seem to have been concentrated around Carthage and the other rich cities of Proconsularis, they all came with the condition that the grandees would provide military service whenever Geyseric called for it, and that saved him the enormous cost of maintaining an army at his own expense, which was the very thing that was hobbling the Romans in the West right this very second. So what does that sound like? That's right, it sounds like feudalism. But the allotments still have vast swathes of territories operated by people who still called themselves Romans. At an absolute maximum, the Vandals never made up more than 10% of the population, and at this early stage, much less than that. A wholesale replacement was not only impossible, it wasn't desirable. Someone had to do all the work on those estates and transport the produce and build and sail the ships. The Vandals, just like about all the Germanic peoples, did not want to destroy the empire. They wanted what the empire had, a functional government and an economy that produced wealth on a scale that was unimaginable in a tribal setting. Geyseric and others had come to the conclusion that there was no way for them to directly participate in these advantages without an unacceptable surrender of independence. So new states would have to be set up. But why reinvent the wheel, especially when there are so many officials in the middle ranks of society who are well-educated and more than competent in running the administrative machinery? <laughs> so life for the middle part of the Roman bureaucracy was probably a bit scary for a while, but eventually they simply got used to reporting to new bosses. For the majority of the population, the vast majority, the slaves, the peasants, the artisans, life probably changed very little. Some historians suggest that from a taxation standpoint, Vandal rule was preferable to many. The most noticeable difference was probably on the borders, where the garrisons were no longer manned, and Moorish raiders became more active and bold as Geyseric focused on the core parts of his provinces. Very little is known about Vandal custom or law or administration, but it's clear that Vandals married and settled disputes amongst themselves according to their own laws, and that the administration and law of the Roman population carried on pretty much unchanged. The Vandals maintained themselves as the royal court and professional army of an otherwise Romano-African state. Large landholders in the Vandal allotments constituted the aristocracy that functioned with separate laws and traditions from their subjects, but how's that different from any other aristocracy in history? If you've been paying attention, you may also be wondering, what the heck happened to the Elans? Well, they certainly still considered themselves a separate group within the Confederation, and Geyseric's title remained Rex Vandalorum et Alani. But to outsiders, the differences were becoming invisible. Roman sources referred to all of the invaders as Vandals without distinction. 
The hierarchy seems to have been Vandals, Alans, Goths, and other splinter tribes that had attached to them while in Spain, and then the local population. By the time the kingdom went to war with the Byzantines in the 530s, the Alans had disappeared as a distinct population entirely. Like any real-world society, though, strictly defining identity was more complicated than a handful of boxes or descriptors. Across the empire, Roman citizens had been adopting barbarian clothing and other signifiers for generations and vice versa. Emperors had issued laws banning the wearing of, quote, German-style trousers within Rome for at least three times after 350. I've already mentioned that Roman-style haircuts had made their way into Gothic life at around that same time, and that just about all luxury goods found in Vandal burials before the migration were of Roman manufacture. Constant trade and conflict will inevitably result in that kind of cultural bleed. But the key factor in ethnicity is self-identification. The old population of Africa would continue to think of themselves as Roman, no matter how many of them wore trousers. And the Vandals continued to think of themselves as Vandals no matter how much wine they consumed, or how much poetry they wrote. Roman writers looked down on men who wore long barbarian hairstyles, which indicates that that was a cultural marker, and trousers remained a controversial fashion statement. But the blending was underway. By far, though, the greatest differentiator of Roman from Vandal was religion. Since the end of the 3rd century, most of the German tribes in direct contact with the Roman Empire had been Christians. But the pattern of conversion had meant that they were mostly Aryan Christians. To quickly remind you what that means, the Aryan creed rejected the idea that the three parts of the Trinity were equal and of the same essence, which was the mainstream position. Instead, the Aryans believed that Jesus the Son had been created by God the Father and was therefore subordinate to him, while the two of them had created the Holy Spirit together, and it was thus junior to the both of them. And as an aside, I have been sloppily referring to the mainstream Christian dogma as both Catholic and Orthodox throughout the show, and that's because they are at this point essentially the same thing. I'll probably continue to do so, at least for a while, and just to muddy the waters a little more, Nicene, which I haven't used yet, and Chalcedonian, likewise, are also names for the creed that may come up after the two great councils that really nailed down the catechismic bedrock of the empire's Christian principles. Anyway, over a century and a half had passed since the conversion of the Germans, and Arianism had become part of the Germanic identity. Differing theologies will gradually develop differing modes of worship, even if they're starting from a very small deviation. The sandal versus the gourd. Arian services were conducted in Gothic, which was apparently intelligible to most East Germanic speakers, and Arianism was so tied up with Germanness, and that appears to have been especially true for the Vandals. The religious environment of North Africa was already a heady mix of ideologies and popular movements before the Vandals had arrived. St. Augustine had spent his whole career sparring with Donatists and Neoplatonist thinkers, as well as those remaining pagans who looked to frame Alaric's sacking of Rome in terms of an empire punished for its neglect of the old gods. The Afro-Romans of the time carried the weight of their faith in their names more than other groups in the empire, and so we hear of men named things like Quodvolt Deus, what God wills, or Deo Gracias, thanks be to God. Religious feelings ran high on all sides. 
But the Vandal responds to their rise to power vis-a-vis religion is unfamiliar to the histories of the barbarian kingdoms we've seen so far. Gaiseric was the first such leader who actively took steps to suppress the dominant faith in his new realm. Whether this was a response to the hardships of the preceding years, or some tenant that was an extension of the Vandal's particular traditions, we can only speculate. The Catholic Church's power structure, just like the secular one, was decapitated. Not literally. Well, sometimes literally, but mostly not. Churches were either closed or converted to Arian use. Most of the leading bishops were rounded up and put on a boat back to Italy, where they would live and work in exile. Lands belonging to the Catholics were seized and redistributed to Arian leadership. It was certainly not a great time to be a Catholic priest or bishop in the Vandal Kingdom, and Gaiseric and his successor's behavior toward the Church is surely one of the greatest factors in the creation of the word Vandalism. But, actually... The question of Catholic persecution under Gaiseric is a bit of a tricky one. All we have to go on are Catholic sources. So, much like the land distribution issue, the impression that we're left with is of a large-scale rooting out, like something out of the French wars of religion in the 16th century. But going a little deeper, there is reason to doubt that impression, at least for Gaiseric's reign. I'll leave discussions of his son's attitude for a later episode. Victor of Vita the most passionate chronicler of the Vandal invasion, insists that hundreds were killed in these persecutions. Churches were burned. Random lay people, women, and children were tortured and murdered for their beliefs. He suggests that that boat that carried the Catholic bishops into exile was deliberately unsound in the hopes that they would be drowned on the way. All of that is an exaggeration. A large portion of the stories of Catholics executed for their beliefs are of aristocrats who managed to find a position at Gaiseric's court and then refused to convert to Arianism, which was the king's favorite test of loyalty. They were more political than religious in nature, is what I mean. If Gaiseric had wanted to martyr all the bishops, surely there were more effective ways than a leaky boat. In fact, if we compare the sources, only two executions of purely religious motivation can be found, and that's the burning of two priests during the last war of Vandal Conquest, the one in which Carthage was taken. Most telling to me is found in the roles of the Catholic saints. There are several dozen martyrs venerated by the Catholic Church from the reign of Hunneric, Gaiseric's son, who succeeded his father and who did persecute the Church in a more fanatical way. But for Gaiseric himself, there are only three, and none of them are actually technically martyrs. Only one of them has a complete narrative attached to him, and that being St. Armogastes. He was a nobleman of the Vandal court, Gaiseric demanded he convert to Arianism, and when Armogastes refused, he was tortured and stripped of his titles. But Gaiseric had no desire to create martyrs, and so put Armogastes in slavery as a cowherd, where he lived out the rest of his days in Job-like patience. Supposedly, when his grave was dug up at the site he had pointed out, a fully built and appointed tomb was found ready for him. Miraculous tomb aside, the story to me highlights Gaiseric's savviness more than anything. He understood the motivational power of martyrdom and did his best to avoid creating that kind of problem for himself. If you look at it from Gaiseric's point of view, all of his actions make perfect sense. He was king and recognized as such by the Romans, but he wasn't foolish enough to believe that the Romans would leave things as they were. And the last thing he needed was internal enemies. Even if he had allowed the great and the good to keep their estates, he would never have been able to trust them. Plus, he had to reward his own men with something. 
so disenfranchising the secular lords was an obvious first step to internal security. Likewise, even without the doctrinal differences, the Catholic Church, while not as monolithic as it later became, was already a wealthy institution with considerable temporal power, with moral authority, and a well-developed communication network added to it. It would have to either be co-opted or hobbled to prevent it from becoming a source of opposition to the king's reign, and since doctrine made it impossible to co-opt the church, it would have to have its secular powers severely reduced. And that's the program we see at work in the so-called persecution of Gaiseric. It seems clear that day-to-day -day worship was not obstructed by the Vandals. Catholic services could be held in smaller venues or private homes without fear that soldiers would kick the door in. Once the most powerful bishops had been removed, most priests were left alone to carry on quietly. Certainly in reduced circumstances, but not necessarily in cringing terror. Conversion to Arianism was a prerequisite for high court positions, and some mid-level administrators may have gone along to get along as well, but otherwise there does not appear to have been a concerted effort at mass conversion of the Afro-Roman population. With his kingdom becoming more secure and productive, Gaiseric began to get to know the neighbors. You know, drop by, bring a bottle of wine, make sure that that one house knows that you will not tolerate their dog doing its business on your flower beds, that kind of thing. Diplomacy, in other words. As far as the Empire itself was concerned, Gaiseric's early policies were focused on keeping them off balance. By capturing Carthage, the Vandals had taken possession of one of the greatest ports in the western Mediterranean. That port was full of ships and full of sailors who still needed employment. The transition from Roman fleet to Vandal fleet seems to have been pretty much seamless. All the seafaring men were the same. The officers and their motivations had just changed. Gaiseric did keep the grain trade going, as he had pledged in 442, but he also outfitted ships for other duties. Vandal raiders struck at Roman towns in Sicily, Sardinia, Hispania, the coast of Dalmatia and Greece, and Gaul. These hit-and-run affairs presaged the Vikings in their tactics, landing near a town or village, often with no immediate hope of defense, taking whatever they could carry and being back on the ships and out at sea before any local garrison had a chance to respond. The raids continued off and on all the way up to the 450s, usually aimed at reminding the Romans of the Vandals' capacity to cause chaos and thereby keep them in line, much the same way the Visigoths had operated on land. Alexandria is said to have prepared itself for Vandal attacks, though they rarely operated out that far in the east. And Egypt was never touched. They did conduct an attack on the Suevic kingdom back in Galicia, which meant sailing all the way out into the Atlantic and around the Iberian Peninsula. So it wasn't too unreasonable for the Alexandrians to be frightened. It's also possible that it became a habit to call pirates vandals regardless of who they actually were, and the place they occupied in the minds of some is demonstrated by a bishop named Nestorius, who wrote that during this period the vandals raided the mouths of the Ganges River in India. They didn't, just to be clear. Closer to home, the immediate neighbors were the Moors to the south. These were Berber tribes that lived by herding and trading and raiding with the Romans for centuries and the Carthaginians before that. Based around oases at the edge of the desert, they were never so numerous as to be a real threat to the settled people of the coasts, and while relations weren't what you would call warm, a reasonably stable status quo had been established. As part of his efforts to prevent rebellion, Gaiseric had the walls of most of the towns of the countryside pulled down. 
That circumvented the possibility of rebels seizing such a town and using it as a fortified base of operations, but it also invited greater raiding activity on the part of the Moors, and it was apparently something that they were prepared to live with. The Vandal Kingdom was recognized as a major player before the treaty with the Romans established it as such. Theodoric I, remember him? The king of the Visigoths, offered his daughter in marriage to Hunneric sometimes around 440, but I would guess before 443, and the girl was duly delivered to Carthage. The newfound distance between the two great Germanic tribes probably did much to blunt their former antagonism, and the military potential of an alliance between them was obvious. Didn't last long, though. Around 443 or 444, immediately after the treaty with Rome, Gaiseric accused the girl of trying to poison him and sent her back to Aquitaine. He cut off her nose and ears first, though, just in case you were starting to think that maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. Thus the animosity between the Vandal and the Visigoth was renewed, and Gaiseric would keep finding ways to make life difficult for Theodoric for the next decade. He would take steps to prevent the Visigoths from making connections to the Suevi in northwest Hispania. That's what that raid on Galicia had been about. And as we heard in episode 12, he would keep up a letter-writing campaign to Attila to encourage hostility from that direction as well. The poisoning story was probably just a cover, though. A new opportunity had appeared, and Gaiseric would have been a fool to ignore it. The possibility of a marriage between Valentinian's eldest daughter Eudocia and Hunneric had been raised along with Hunneric's transfer to Italy as a hostage. A connection to the Roman imperial family would be far more valuable than one with the Goths, so Gaiseric had taken steps to clear the way for the marriage to take place. Unnecessarily cruel, but steps. Raiding stopped after about 445, and that must have been connected to Gaiseric's desire to see the marriage happen. He softened his policies in other areas as well, allowing new Catholic bishops to be installed in Hadramentum and later in Carthage, and allowing many of the exiled bishops to return in 454. Whether the Romans would have ultimately let the marriage go through under those conditions or not, we'll never know, because in that same year, things took a turn. Flavius Aetius, now played by an older Spider-Man-era Michael Keaton, had been the most powerful man in the West for 20 years. No one in such a position is universally beloved, and Aetius had rivals aplenty at court. He'd always been able to hold them at bay, though, until two men, the imperial chamberlain, Heraclius, and another courtier named Petronius Maximus, began to whisper in Valentinian III's ear. Aetius may be becoming too powerful. Surely he would eventually have no further need of Valentinian. A steady stream of such whispers came Valentinian's way, and when Aetius moved to marry his son to Valentinian's daughter Placidia, it seemed to confirm the emperor's suspicions. This is all very familiar from the fall of Stilicho, but the climax handily gives Aetius the medal for best Roman political assassination of the late empire. During a meeting to discuss imperial finances, Valentinian accused Aetius of attempting to seize power for himself, drew his sword, and together with Heraclius, stabbed his greatest general to death. It's kind of an honor, really, to be struck down by the emperor personally. They usually prefer to keep that kind of thing at arm's length. Later on, possibly seeking some validation, Valentinian observed to some among his court that he had done a good thing by removing Aetius from the picture, and someone replied, I am ignorant of your motives, sir, but you have behaved as a man who cuts off his right hand with his left. Flavius Aetius was about 62 or 63 years old. 
and he had been the real power in the Empire, depending on who you asked, for 21 years. Many have called him the last Roman, a sobriquet that was also applied to Stilicho and to Aurelian. Gibbon called him the last prop holding up the edifice of empire, and still others have quipped that if he was the last Roman, it was because he left nothing of Rome for those that followed. I say that he was a complicated, cunning, ruthless, and often unattractive man of towering ego, who was also a great general and a brilliant player of the political game. Like his greatest foe, Attila, it's hard to like him sometimes, but he will be missed. Political chaos followed the death of Flavius Aetius, and regular chaos too. Now that the common enemy had been eliminated, the co-conspirators who had manipulated the emperor immediately dropped the prefix and began conspiring against each other. Petronius Maximus had expected to take Aetius's place as Magister Militum, but he was blocked by Heraclius. Meanwhile, Aetius had at least as many friends as he had had enemies, among them a number of Hun mercenaries and clients. Some of these were appointed to positions in the emperor's bodyguard. One day he was out for archery practice with Heraclius when they were attacked by two of these men and killed. Some sources say that they were themselves egged on by Petronius Maximus, who had decided that Magister Militum was small potatoes anyway and made a play for the big prize. Valentinian III was 37 years old and had been the Augustus for an amazing 30 of those years and never once in that time was he the most powerful man at his court. Valentinian had no male heirs, and Maximus leveraged his huge personal wealth and relationship with the Senate to have himself declared emperor. But Petronius Maximus's legitimacy outside the palace was exactly equal to the square root of Jack. Outside the small circle of senatorial aristocrats and palace officials, he had no support whatsoever. Martian, the Eastern Emperor, refused to recognize his accession. Regardless of the general uselessness of the Theodosian emperors for the last 50 years, they were still seen by both aristocracy and people as the rightful rulers of the empire, so Maximus took the perfectly logical, if a little gross, steps needed to weld himself into that dynasty. He forced Eudoxia, Valentinian's widow, to marry him, and announced plans to marry her daughter Eudoxia to his son. So I'm just going to say that again another way. He forced Eudoxia, with an X, to marry her husband's usurper, who she strongly suspected was also her husband's murderer, and he forced Eudoxia, with a C, to marry his son. The Eudoxia, with a C, that had previously been engaged to Hunneric, with an H, Geyseric's son. Understandably unhappy, Eudoxia supposedly sent a message to Geyseric telling him what had happened and asking for his help. He was more than happy to oblige. There's an obvious echo here of the story of Honoria's appeal to Attila, and no contemporary source mentions such a message. Eudoxia was much older and wiser than Honoria, and would have been aware of her sister-in-law's foolishness just four years earlier. So the damsel in distress narrative doesn't really hold up in this case. But Geyseric wouldn't have needed it anyway. He had been this close to joining the Theodosian dynasty with his own, 
He had wrecked the relationship with Theodoric in service of that goal. The marriage of Hunneric and Eudocia wouldn't have guaranteed peace between Roman and Vandal, but it would have been an important step in that direction. And now this jumped-up senator that he had never heard of had torn the whole thing up by the root. By all appearances, the Vandal King's wrath at the thwarting of his plans was translated into immediate action. By the end of May 455, just ten weeks after Valentinian's death, Vandal forces had been mustered and set sail for Italy. The force was a mixed one of Vandal warriors and Moorish auxiliaries, probably transported by Roman sailors. It was a multi-pronged action, as the fleets quickly retook Sardinia and Sicily before moving on to the Italian mainland. With no support among the army, Petronius Maximus made no attempt to stop the Vandals or even slow them down, or anything. What he did instead was panic. On the 31st of May, he advised the citizens of Rome to run for their lives. Don't worry, good people, your emperor will be with you! Some good citizen of the city had flung a rock or a brick and struck the emperor in the head and killed him where he stood. The crowd took a break from fleeing to mutilate his body, drag it through the streets, and dump him in the river. Petronius Maximus was in his late fifties and had been emperor, kind of, for seventy-five days. The Romans who could abandoned the city. Those who could not hunkered down and feared the worst. When Gaiseric and his army arrived two days later, they found the gates weren't even locked. One man who could have fled but didn't was Pope Leo. He sent a message to Gaiseric before he entered the city and asked for a meeting, which was granted. For the second time in three years, Leo hoped to dissuade a barbarian leader from destroying his ancient city. I have to wonder about Leo's attitude toward these two men, Attila and Gaiseric, and wonder how it differed if it did. Attila was a heathen, of course, but Gaiseric was a heretic, which would have been in many ways worse. A heathen, in Leo's view, is a person who does not know the truth and so can be pitied, and if possible, educated to find the truth. A heretic, like Gaiseric, is one who has heard the truth, and yet willfully rejects it, making the heretic a much more dangerous and contemptible figure. But Leo had been dealing with the mighty for his entire career, and I imagine that he was more than capable of taking a pragmatic approach to this kind of thing. In his meeting with Gaiseric, he asked that the Vandal king and his army refrain from burning and murder, and confine themselves only to pillage. In return, he offered to empty the treasury of St. Peter's without reservation, and I imagine to pray for the king's soul. Gaiseric agreed. With Petronius Maximus dead, there was nothing left to achieve politically, and the prospect of an entire city's worth of plunder offered up without resistance would be compensation for the journey many times over. The Vandals and Moors spent two weeks systematically stripping Rome of its treasures, its statuary, its food, and its silks and furs. Famously, they stole half the roof off the Temple of Jupiter. It was widely believed to be made of solid gold, and the Vandals apparently stopped when they discovered that it was actually only gold-plated copper. The other specific object that everyone mentions is the menorah, which had been taken from the Temple of Jerusalem during the suppression of the Jewish Revolt in 71 CE. It was loaded onto a ship and relocated to Africa. Much of the statuary that decorated the imperial palaces and temples was loaded onto a single ship, which was the only one that sank on the return voyage. 
and it's still out there somewhere, awaiting rediscovery. The weeks of the sack were, no doubt, nerve-wracking for the city's residents. Some would have been old enough to remember Alaric's assault and told their children and grandchildren of that traumatic experience. But though I'm sure there were plenty of incidents of Vandal warriors getting out of hand, it appears that Geyseric was as good as his word. We hear nothing of wanton murder or torture, and archaeology confirms that there was no widespread destruction of buildings. Overall, I think we have to give the Vandals high marks for their conduct during the sack, better than Alaric's goths. Maybe that's why fate allowed Geyseric to return to Carthage safely, instead of striking him down, as she had Alaric. He did not return alone. Along with all that gold, silver, marble, silk, and slaves, Geyseric brought back even greater treasure. Eudoxia and her daughters, Eudocia and Placidia. These three, uh, guests were worth more to the king than all of the other plunder combined. Eudocia was married to Hunneric, as had been originally planned. The other two were kept in extremely comfortable captivity, as hostages to be used by Geyseric in his diplomatic maneuvers. Without the Theodosians, without even a pretender emperor in Italy, the Western Empire was rudderless for two whole months, as everyone tried to figure out what to do next. The answer would come from an unexpected direction. And we will talk about that next time, as the Empire tries to pull itself together again. Thanks to all for listening. If you're enjoying this show, or if you have questions or corrections, I'd love to hear it. You can contact me via the contact page at darkagespod.com, or on Twitter at darkagespod. I share relevant images occasionally on Instagram, which is also at darkagespod. And you can also search for the podcast on Facebook and follow the podcast there. I will confess I still don't quite understand how to use the social medias in this whole game, but I continue to try and learn. You can also, of course, rate and review the show on whatever app you use, including Spotify now, where I believe you can rate individual episodes as well as the podcast as a whole. And that is enough nonsense from me. Until next time, take care. Mm -hmm.